thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Yes, me again. Today is a special bonus episode to celebrate the fact that it's two years since the first episode of the History of European Theatre podcast was published. That was 75 full episodes ago and 14 bonus episodes. Quite something. In the first year, we got through the long period from the very beginning of mimetic drama through the ancient Greeks to the rise and fall of the Roman theatre. Things have slowed down a little in the second year, but still we managed to cut through the medieval period and a good chunk of the European Renaissance too. And of course, it's the journey that matters, not the destination. Good news is that I'm still enjoying doing this podcasting thing, learning lots and from the feedback I've had from listeners and by the fact that you're still hearing this now, I guess that applies to you too. And there is lots to look forward to as I embark on year three, with not just Shakespeare, who of course is looming large in my sights, but with the other English dramatists of the 16th and 17th centuries and then on to more on the European continent too. I think one thing I can guarantee is that the pace of the podcast through history will slow further as we get to periods where more information is available and I am enjoying delving into even the most obscure of theatrical details. By way of marking the podcast's second anniversary and to divert away from the main podcast timeline for a few minutes, I thought I would share some more personal stories with you. This episode is prompted by my first theatrical memories and the space they happened in. Every theatre of some age has wonderful historic stories to tell, and in that sense, this theatre is no more special than any other. But it does have its own unique history, and it's the type of thing that I hope I'll be able to delve into more in the main podcast once we get to those periods of history where the details of theatre buildings and the activities in them are recorded in better detail. And of course, this theatre has personal and formative memories for me. I have to say up front that for this episode, besides my own memories, I am indebted to the information on the website www.arthurlloyd.co.uk, which has a wealth of information about theatres and music halls in the UK. I've used the details there with the kind permission of Matthew Lloyd. This episode would have been impossible, or at least very short, without the information on the Arthur Lloyd website, and I'm really grateful to Martin for allowing me to make use of the details there. If you have any sort of interest in the history of any UK theatre, it's well worth taking a look at that site. I've put links in the show notes. The theatre in question, the theatre where I had my first theatrical experiences, is the Castle Theatre in my hometown, Farnham. But before I tell you about the Castle Theatre, let me set the scene a little. I'm conscious that most listeners are outside of the UK, and even those who are here with me may not have visited Farnham. If you take a train ride out of London's Waterloo Station and go southwest for about an hour, you'll get to Farnham. The town lies in Surrey, but very close to the Hampshire border. The train line actually comes to an end a couple of stations further on, not far from the village of Chawton, home and burial place of Jane Austen. That really is still a village deep in the Hampshire countryside, but Farnham, while still being an essentially rural town for most of its history, is much larger, with a current population of about 39,000 souls. Evidence of Roman period occupation near one edge of the current town was found relatively recently, but continuous settlement seems to have started with the 7th century Saxon village that grew and became a trading town during the medieval period, being well established by the 13th century. Farnham's own literary connection comes a little later. William Cobbett, Politician, pamphleteer and author of the early 19th century was born in the town in a building that is still standing. 
It was a pub called the Jolly Farmer until it was appropriately renamed the William Cobbett in the 1970s. In its simplest form, the town is a crossroads at the bottom of a steep valley. The River Way, a tributary of the Thames, runs through the town. The east-west axis is the flatter run along the valley floor once you've descended from the heights of Aldershot, a long-time military garrison town and Farnham's neighbour. Toward the western end of the current town, the road is bisected by another running north-south. This has come down steeply from the north, past the castle with its Norman keep and the old marketplace. Livestock, wool and hops were the mainstay of Farnham's local economy for centuries. But just the usual shops populate the town now. As the road runs south, over the river and up the hill towards the railway station and much of the residential part of the town, it crosses the main road, heading to the county town of Guildford. Go a little further and you'll come across the ruins of Waverley Abbey, a spot settled by the first Cistercian monks that arrived in England from France in 1128. It's been in its ruined state since 1536, when it was dismantled under Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries. It's well worth a trip up there to see the ruins, with the additional benefit of there being several very fine country pubs in the area. If you came into the town down the hill from the north, through the trees you can just see the mid-12th century castle with parkland behind it, former home of the bishops of Winchester. They built this as a convenient stopping-off point about halfway between London and their seat in Winchester. As you descend along the path, you'll come to the Bishop's Steps. These assist on a particularly steep part of the road into town and are said to have been built for Bishop Fox of Winchester, who was blind for the last ten years of his life in the early 16th century. The steps were built as seven sets of seven steps, with seven paces between each set of steps, making life a little easier for the blind bishop, but difficult for tongue-tied podcasters. Beyond the steps, you pass the Nelson Arms, another fine watering hole, and then a few 19th century almshouses, and then some shops, until, to your left, there is a small courtyard. It's a bit different now, but if you'd ventured into the yard for most of its life, you would have seen a hay barn, dating from a time when the blind bishop could well have used the smell of the drying hay as a useful marker on his journey into town. Although the original construction is dated to the 16th century, the use of the building over the years has varied. It may have originally been built as a home, then been used as sleeping quarters for the castle servants, and then just as a storage space. But use as a hay barn seems to have been the case for a long settled period, and it's how the history of the building was portrayed when the theatre-goers started to visit. The story of the Castle Theatre starts relatively late, but certainly there would have been theatre in Farnham long before its inception. A thriving market town on the roads between London and Southampton and London and Guildford would have been a prime target for travelling players from the Middle Ages onwards. A market town meant money changing hands, winners and losers, people letting their hair down for the day and looking for a bit of entertainment. Unfortunately, none of this has been recorded specifically in Farnham. But to leap forward a lot, there is a story of one Arthur West in 1905. He had tried to erect a wooden theatre building with a canvas roof and, wonder of wonders, gas lighting. This was in direct contravention of local planning laws and his activities were soon stopped by the local council. So the first permanent theatre in Farnham, the Castle Theatre, came into being in 1939, 
just as the Second World War, from England's point of view, was getting started. A touring troupe called the English Travelling Players, led by actor Lawrence Ray, had recently returned from Europe in the face of the looming war. They travelled up from the south coast where the ferry from France had docked and happened to make their first overnight stop in Farnham. The story goes that they were travelling in a van which was parked in Castle Street and they slept in it overnight. The next morning they walked around town a little and rather liked the look of the place. They made some inquiries and were directed to a local town luminary who luckily felt accommodating towards the actors. He gave them a tour of the town and as part of this showed them an empty 16th century hay barn close to where they had overnighted in their van. Now it must have taken quite a leap of imagination to see the space as a home for theatre but a plan was hatched, a rental fee was agreed and the troops set about turning the place into a theatre enlisting the help of a local builder to assist with the more structural elements of the work. The floor of the would-be auditorium was given an appropriate rake, something that would later be adjusted as dimensions of the space were refined, and a stage area at floor level was marked out. Dressing rooms were built and old cinema seats were found that could be repurposed in the theatre. I think these were the very same seats that I sat in as a child in the 1970s. With very curved and low backs, they were not comfortable, even for a child. The building work added a front entrance that opened from the courtyard onto a very small foyer, where the original wooden features of the barn could be admired. The auditorium could accommodate just 176 seats for the audience, and that was at quite a pinch. The stage was in fact bigger than the auditorium. The low roof was a problem. A tall actor only needed to stand on a prop box and would be able to touch the ceiling, which meant that the flats that made up the stage scenery could only be eight feet tall. The front row of the audience was practically sitting on the stage, and any unguarded stretch of the legs could result in an actor going tumbling at an inopportune moment. The star dressing room had to be accommodated to the left edge of the stage, behind the no-smoking signs. But such privations and risks were the rough-and-tumble of the life of the acting troupe, and at least they could now settle in one place. But settling in one place meant that some new administrative details had to be dealt with. The local town council was responsible at the time for issuing theatre licences, and being a relatively conservative town, this was not forthcoming. So, the newly formed company had to operate as a private members' theatre club to avoid the need for licensing. Under this arrangement, only members of the club could buy tickets to see a performance. Membership of the club cost two shillings and sixpence per annum, and tickets for a seat cost three shillings and sixpence, two shillings and sixpence, or one shilling and sixpence. When it opened on the 5th of December 1939, the Farnham Playhouse, as Lawrence Ray had called it, had 300 members. George Bernard Shaw, You Never Can Tell, was the opening production, commencing a 27-week season. Over and above the hard work of getting a new enterprise off the ground, that first season was a difficult one. On very wet days, leaks were always being hastily plugged, and in the opening winter, the cold crept easily into the building. Then came the summer heat, which was a problem for the building not designed to accommodate so many people. Rudimentary ventilation was added during the summer, but still, the theatre lacked many of the comforts we would take for granted today. One of the most significant and unavoidable problems was that wartime meant that there were few male actors available. For the start, and for a good portion of its life, the Castle Theatre was set up on a weekly repertory theatre basis, as was common in the UK at the time. 
So that usually meant six evening performances and two matinees a week to entertain the 176 people squeezed into the auditorium. Rehearsal for the next week's play was in the daytime, so an actor could be playing one part, rehearsing another and learning the lines for another all at the same time. It's a system that survived for a long time and many argue why England produced so many fine actors. They had all done the hours in many small repertory companies that peppered the land. The end of the summer brought an end to that first season, and the second, despite some optimism, was not to commence until October 1941. In the intervening months, the building was used as a dance club. When the theatre reopened, it was renamed the Castle Theatre, and the company as the Farnham Repertory Company. The weekly rep model continued despite the struggle to find actors and resources. At one point, the then director of the company had to defend himself against accusations of being a conscientious objector. He was, in fact, excused duty on medical grounds. On another occasion, a special gala performance of The Importance of Being Earnest was given for the benefit of providing mobile X-ray units for, and I quote, our gallant allies, the Russians. In the 1940s and the 1950s, the country was recovering financially and socially from the effects of the Second World War, and there were no public subsidies generally available for places like the Castle Theatre. In fact, there was an entertainment tax of six pence on every ticket sold. This had been in place since the First World War to provide funds for local councils to support the arts, but the company at the Castle Theatre was never in receipt of any such grants. By 1947, the club membership had fallen to just 1,000 members and an emergency meeting was called. At that meeting, a not-for-profit administration company was formed to manage the theatre's affairs and the whole enterprise was only saved by some generous one-off donations that helped to resolve the current deficit of just over £100. Now that sounds like a tiny sum today, but to put that into context, a profit of £20 or £30 for a week of performances was considered a good week. So this deficit represented maybe four or six weeks of profit. Typically, weekly takings were about £108, with the weekly expenses being budgeted at £125. Other income from the profits of the coffee bar and donations were hoped to make up the difference. The formation of this company not only brought some rigour to monitoring and controlling these shaky finances, but allowed for exemption from entertainment tax because of the not-for-profit status. It all helped, but was no panacea. The company was still troubled. In 1948, the current director fell out with the committee and he and most of the company resigned en masse. A reconstituted company was formed in October 1948 and the theatre enjoyed a more stable period despite ever-present financial pressures and a heavy reliance on fundraising and volunteers to keep the show on the road. A note from May 1952 gives an insight into the detail of theatre financing at the time. The then director of the company suggested that ideally there would be 12 actors divided equally between the sexes and three stage staff in the company. His frustration was that the company currently had six men and five women, including the stage staff. He lamented that for a regular sale of seven extra seats nightly, he could achieve a company of the right size and balance. But artistically, the theatre had gained a good reputation and attracted many good actors. Many actors who later appeared in British films, TV and on the West End stage worked there. From an international point of view, perhaps the best known was Edward Woodward, he of The Wicker Man and The Equaliser, among many other things. 
he appeared at the Castle Theatre as a young actor. In an oft-repeated anecdote that illustrates the intimacy of the theatre, he reported that while he was standing downstage and engaged in an emotional scene, he felt a tug on his trouser leg and received a compliment for his previous week's performance from a member of the audience in the front row. Weekly Rep was a real grind for all concerned. After the last performance on a Saturday night, the current set was struck very quickly. It was said that if you lingered just briefly when leaving the auditorium on a Saturday night, that you might catch the stagehand and designer starting their night's work. By the following Monday afternoon, the new set, lighting and props had to be in place for the dress rehearsal, and the first performance was on that Monday evening. There really was no leeway for big problems. But as is the way in the theatre, the show went on, often with individuals doubling up on roles both on and off stage to keep the show on the road. And this was the pattern through the 1950s and the 1960s, with a move to a slightly more relaxed fortnightly cycle and offering some touring productions to other theatres in the south of England by the mid-60s. I have a programme from the theatre from May 1967, which gives an interesting snapshot to the eclectic mix of plays on offer that summer. At the end of May, there was The Killing of Sister George by Frank Marcus. This play had recently had a successful West End run in 1966, having started life at the Bristol Old Vic the preceding year. Then, in mid-June, came The Forest by Alexander Obtrovsky, who was a significant playwright in Russia in the late 19th century. The programme claims that this is the first English production of the Russian comedy. Then came Boeing Boeing, a French farce by Mark Campbelletti that in its English translation had recently finished a four-year run in the West End. No doubt a guaranteed seat filler for the English summer. Following this in July came Two Gentlemen of Verona. Each play ran for two weeks. I have this programme because the play presented from the 15th of May for two weeks was Men Were Deceivers Ever by Pierre Carlet de Chamblain de Marivaux in an English translation and arrangement by Vivian Rowe, my grandfather. Marivaux wrote comedies for Parisian audiences at the Comédie Française and the Comédie Italienne from the 1720s onwards, having previously published several novels. The play, in French, Les Fossés Confidences, was originally presented at, of course, the Hôtel de Bourgogne on the 16th of March, 1737, with King Louis XV present. The play takes up a common theme for plays at the time, how deception can be used in pursuit of love. I don't have a record of how successful the play was, but a couple of clippings from the local press suggest that it was well received. Recommended as an escape from the worries of the jet age, enthused the reviewer for the Surrey and Hans News. By the 1970s, with increasing audience expectations for both comfort in the theatre for actors and the audience and high production values, the inherent problems with the theatre buildings, that it was too small and could not be updated, became more and more obvious. This is the point where I have three fleeting memories of the Castle Theatre. I can remember a moment from which I assume was a Christmas pantomime when a character from a play came running up the aisle with a large umbrella in his hand and brushed past me. All very exciting, I thought, as I could almost reach out and touch him. I can't place the date exactly for that experience, but I'm guessing it was Christmas 1973, because in 1974, the Castle Theatre closed. I have more memories for the last two productions. I'm not sure of the order, but one was Free as Air, a Julian Slade and Dorothy Reynolds musical, and a lesser-known sibling of Salad Days, which still gets some revivals today. 
and the other was 1066 and all that, a comic telling of the sweep of English history based on the book by W.C. Seller and R.J. Yateman, first published in 1930. The book billed itself as All the History You Can Remember and takes 62 short chapters to cover English history from the Roman invasion through 1066 and all that to the end of the First World War. The book was poking fun at both the great man style of teaching history as well as the opposing Whig history view that broadly saw English history as a journey from oppression to the glorious enlightened present. The play adaption included some light-hearted songs and created an everyman character who travelled through history as an observer and sometimes reluctant participant in the action. Both plays were, I think, produced in a hurry because the opening of the purpose-built theatre to replace the Castle Theatre was delayed. Yes, the closure of the Castle Theatre was not a sad event. Its replacement was the Redgrave Theatre, named after Michael of that great acting dynasty. The new building, which was appended to an existing listed house, included a large foyer, a studio theatre, as well as the necessary offices and backstage areas, and a large main house. This could seat more than double the audience of the Castle Theatre in air-conditioned comfort. It had a thrust stage with a central revolve and a modern lighting system. It took a staff of 50 or 60 people to run the theatre. The contrast with the old Castle Theatre could not have been greater. But the new theatre did manage to retain some of that sense of the former theatre's intimacy through an auditorium without a central aisle, and also a reliance on volunteers and fundraisers to keep it going. That must have been very familiar to the die-hard supporters. Sadly, the Redgrave had a relatively short life, just 24 years, and is now completely demolished, as that particular part of town undergoes a huge redevelopment. The struggle, and ultimately the failure, to keep theatre alive in Farnham, a town where the demographics suggest theatre should be very popular, is an interesting one in itself, and speaks to the larger story of the struggle of survival of local theatre in England. But that's for another day. There's one last story from the Castle Theatre that I should tell you. Every theatre has a ghost, and the Castle Theatre is no exception. But this one is from its pre-theatre times. The story goes that after many years at sea, a sailor returned to his hometown to marry his intended, only to discover that she had married another in his absence. Distraught, he hung himself in the hay barn that would one day become a theatre. As there was no terrible murder of an actor or actress, or suicide of a distraught author in the one-time barn, it is still just the lovelorn sailor who haunts the place, roaming the barn in search of a beam for his noose. As theatrical ghost stories go, it's not a very impressive one, and I'm sure that many a better ghost story was told on the stage of the Castle Theatre. My thanks again to Matthew Lloyd and to the Arthur Lloyd website. Do take a look there for lots of theatre information. Details are in the show notes. If you want to know more about the history of Farnham, I've also put some links in the show notes about that. English Heritage care for the site of Waverley Abbey and have information about it on their website. You can find out about Farnham Castle and the Keep on their own website. The Keep is open to the public and arranged visits to the castle, which is now a conference centre and wedding venue, are possible. For general historical information about Farnham, the Farnham Society has lots of information and publications about different aspects of the history and life in the town. You might even spot my grandfather's books in second-hand bookshops. 
He wrote travel books in the 1940s, 50s and 60s on different areas of France, weaving stories from French history into observations on his travels through the landscapes of a country recovering from war and then modernising, all aimed at the burgeoning travel industry coming out of the UK to the continent. They are, of course, more than a little out of date now, but full of the charm, humour and enthusiasm that I remember him for. Thanks for your support for the podcast over the last couple of years. I could not have done it without you. Here's to the next one. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 